I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 139. Uh, if you have a Bible, it's right in the middle. If you are running into the Proverbs, you've gone too far to the right. If you run into Job, you're too far to the left. We're going to be looking at Psalm 139. I wanted to tell you a little bit about myself um, before I begin. Uh, I grew up about 30 miles south of here down around Fountain, and uh, came to Christ as a senior at Winona State in 1971 at the age of 21. I uh, went to seminary, got married, went to seminary. Uh, my first church was in Preston. Was there for a total of two years, and then we ended up moving to Winona. I was a pastor there for nine years, and then in 1996, we began uh, Heartland Community Church in St. Charles, where I was for 22 years until I retired at the end of 2017. My wife and I, Debbie, had uh, four kids. They're all about your age. They're in their, my oldest is 40. And uh, they, uh, uh, together we have uh, 15 grandkids. Uh, Debbie succumbed to uh, colon cancer in 2015 after a nine-year battle with, or not nine-year, a five-and-a-half-year battle with colon cancer. Uh, Gretchen and I met online and just celebrated our third anniversary on Wednesday. So anyway, that's a little bit about me. Uh, we are going to use Psalm 139 as, as a, an exercise, an example. Uh, in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, um, this is after the law had been given, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, the law had been given. Uh, Joshua is standing on the banks of the Jordan River ready to cross into the promised land. And God speaks to Joshua and he says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you shall make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. God tells Joshua, he says, I don't want you just to talk about the Bible. I don't want you just to read the Bible, but I want, to want you to think about it. I want you to think about it deeply. He says, if you're going to be prosperous, if you're going to have good success, as God defines those things, you need to be obedient to the Scripture. But in order to be obedient to the Scripture, you need to know what the Scripture says. And biblical meditation is different than the Eastern meditation, Eastern mysticism, yoga kind of thing that you hear where you try to block everything out. Uh, biblical meditation is to think deeply about what the scripture says. One of the things I love about our small group is we have a group of people who like to pick apart the, the verse and to think about what is being said and what is not being said. Uh, in 2 Samuel 22, verse 31, which is not on the screen, it says that every word of God is tested. The Bible isn't just a collection of short stories. It's written by God himself. He has chosen certain words to use and certain words not to use. And so this morning we're going to be using uh, Psalm 139. We're going to be going really fast. My goal is not for you to retain everything but my goal is to whet your appetite so that in the week to come, you will be thinking about what's in Psalm 139. I want you to take some time this week. Meditation takes time. It's not something you just breeze through. 
but I want you to take some time and go through Psalm 139. I'm hoping to whet your appetite because there's just a lot in here. But I'm going to be asking some questions. I'm going to be making some comments. We don't have time to have a discussion. I would love to have a discussion with you over some of the things in here. Uh, but we don't have time. And so um, we'll, be, we'll go relatively fast. But I want to use this as an opportunity for you to begin to think, okay, what does it mean to meditate on the scriptures? It's one of those spiritual disciplines. In verse 1 of Psalm 139 it says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Now, there's two things in that verse that I would like you to notice. Uh, I would like you to, well, as part of meditation is to notice what's there and what's not. I want you to notice two things. There are other things, but he says, you have searched me and known me. This is the past tense. He's not saying, I will search you and you will know me. But David is saying to God, he says, you have searched me. This is past tense. It's something that God does right along in our lives. But I want you also to notice the punctuation at the end of the verse. The ESV has an exclamation point. Other versions have a period. And the idea here is that it's a statement. It's, it's not a question. He's not questioning whether God searches him or knows him, but he's making a statement, a proclamation, a declaration. And notice in verse 2, he says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Now, how many times a day do you sit down and rise up? Some of you have jobs where you're seated quite a bit. There's others of you who are on your feet most of the day. And is it, is it even the point that God knows exactly how many times you stand and how many times you sit? Or is it a way of saying to you that he knows everything that's mundane about your life? The ordinary things, the things that nobody else knows, God knows about your life. And he says, you discern my thoughts from afar. Hmm. You discern my thoughts from afar. God knows what you think, what you and I think. You don't have to feel close to God for God to know what you're thinking. He knows what you think. And the issue for us is oftentimes we like to think that our inner, in our heads, nobody knows. We can keep secrets. We can harbor evil thoughts and nobody will ever know. And yet God knows. And sometimes that can be convicting. But there's also another blessing to this idea. There's certain things that have happened to you. There's certain emotions, certain things in your heart that you cannot express. You just don't know how to do it. Or something awful has happened to you. And there's pain in there. And you don't even know how to express it. But God knows. God knows everything that you think. In verse 3, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Each of us has a path every day. One of the things that Gretchen and I like to do before we park ways in the morning is to hug each other and to pray because we know from experience that the plan that we have the path that we have planned out for our day isn't necessarily what happens in 2009 debbie and i had a plan for our life and yet in 2009 we heard that a diagnosis says she had a year and a half to live there was a day that gretchen had a path in her life she was going to check her and see if her husband what he was doing and she discovered that he had uh, been killed. We have a path for our life. There's a gal from St. Charles. 
on her way home, young mom and, and mother on her way home, was killed a couple weeks ago. Each of us has a path for our life, a plan, if you will. And yet the reality is, as we stand at the beginning of each day, we have no idea where that path is going to lead. And yet God does. He says in verse 4, Even before the word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Wow. God knows what you're going to say. I'm blessed to know that he knows what I'm going to say. I have planned for this day, but what actually comes out of my mouth is a whole other thing. God knows what he's, you're going to say. He knows if you're going to bless someone or if you're going to curse somebody or hurt somebody or discourage someone. He says in verse 5, You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. I don't know if you've ever tried to catch a frog. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was with one of the grandkids along a uh, lake, and there was a little frog, and you try to catch him, and you... I don't know what you do, but I try to put my hands, I try to enclose them behind and before. And then to keep, well, I don't have three hands, but otherwise you put your hand on top. But you see, the same thing is true with your life and mine. God is before you. God is behind you. God is on top. He has your life contained. Nothing happens to you by accident. Nothing is random. God knows. God encloses you behind and before. But some of the things that I've said, or the scripture says in these first few verses, can be intimidating. They can be convicting. The idea that God knows what you're thinking. Maybe you're involved in pornography. Maybe you're involved in a revenge or hatred or something like that. He knows what you're thinking. He knows where you are. He knows what's going on in your life. In some ways, that can be convicting. And in other ways, that can be really comforting to know that you don't have to try to explain to God the, the pain that you can't explain to yourself. God knows all about us. And notice in verse 6, how such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. The psalmist David says, you know what? I just can't imagine, God, that you would take the time to know that much about me. He says it's too high. I can't attain it. I, you know, I stop to think if God knows all about me, that maybe, maybe I could grasp that. But then he knows all about me and all about you and you and you and all of you, people around the world. God knows all of those things. It is too high. How can you even imagine it? God knows more than Google. So God knows everything about you, like it or not. He knows everything about you, but he also is present everywhere that you are. He says in verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? You ever tried to get away from God? You ever had something that you knew that God wanted you to do? But you didn't want to do it, and so you try to ignore God, try to get away. There was an Old Testament prophet that lived about 300 years after David. His name was Jonah. And uh, Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, it says, God tells Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. 
for their evil has come up before me. Nineveh was probably the biggest city in the world at the time. It was a, a place that was filled with evil, as God has said. It was a place, a group of people who were, had been cruel to the Jews. You might want to call Jonah a racist, because later on in the book it says that Jonah knew that he was, if he proclaimed the truth to the Ninevites, they would repent in turn, that God was going to be gracious to them. So his response was in verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, which is probably around, uh, around where modern-day Spain is. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. God says, Jonah, I want you to go to the northeast. And Jonah says, you know what? I don't like those guys. I don't want them to repent. So I'm going to go to the west. Well, it didn't go well for Jonah. God sent a wind and the ship was tossed and ultimately they threw Jonah overboard. Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days, but it was in that fish that he discovered that God was present everywhere. There was no place that he could go, no place he could run away from God. So if you're in the process in your life of trying to run away from God, it's not possible. As your child, he is where you are all the time. He says in verse 9, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, wouldn't it be fun? I don't know about you, if you're a morning person or not, but wouldn't it be fun to be able to hop on the dawn <coughs> and be able to go around the world and wake people up all the time? But even where, if going around the world, even there, God is with you. Or to go to a desert island, God is there too. There's no place that God is not. And notice in verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. There is no place that you can go that God cannot reach you. Nothing that can happen to you that God cannot somehow help you and lead you and guide you. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light become around me be night. And even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. God sees in the dark. God sees in the dark. Darkness is as day to you, he says. In John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus said this, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. There's an innate sense in people that God exists. And because they want to do evil things, they tend to do it at, at night or away from uh, prying eyes. They close the doors and enclosed areas of some sort. People love the darkness rather than light. And so they try to get away from God's view, if you will, by doing evil at night. And that might apply to you. There may be things that you're doing that you know that God doesn't want, and so you do it at night. Maybe drugs or alcohol or sex or whatever it is. 
There may be things that you're doing at night and you think somehow that God doesn't see because it's dark. But God does see. God is present everywhere that you are. Whether that place is a good place or a bad place. God knows you completely and God is able to be wherever you are. God is everywhere. But I want you to notice also, beginning in verse 13, that God is our creator. He says in verse 13, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Now why did he use the word knitted? Any of you knit? Anybody knit? I know almost nothing about knitting, so don't be too hard on me. But the idea came to me that when you're knitting, it takes a lot of little stitches, intricately, carefully planned, put together. It takes intricate stitching, but it also takes time in order to knit something. And oftentimes when you're knitting something, you can't quite figure out what it is until it's close to done. And God is talking about you. And I think he uses the term knitting here because he puts you together piece by piece over a period of time, intricately puts you together. He didn't just push and create you in your mother's womb. Little by little, taking time that he needed, he puts you together. He created you. But then in verse 14, he says, I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. <coughs> My soul knows it very well. I want you to notice, especially in verse 14, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You aren't the product of, of time and chance. You, as an individual, were made by God. 150, 160 years ago, Charles Darwin wrote his, his book, The Origin of the Species. And even though the ideas don't make a whole lot of sense, they were snapped up by, by people who love darkness rather than light. Because for the first time, it gave us a way of having a creation without a creator, of having design without a designer. If you could somehow make this all happen by time and chance, then somehow we didn't need God anymore. One of the defining characteristics of God as creator was, was taken away from him. And we hear it from everywhere. Uh, it's just any, any you know, academ academia, uh, television, entertainment, you just hear it from everywhere about millions of years and, and chance and whatever. But the result is that as, even as believers, we have been influenced by that thinking. And so we look at our own bodies and we think, well, no big deal. All it took was time and chance. Let me share an illustration. Not an illustration, it's the truth. You take a, a male cell and a female cell, each with 23 chromosomes, and you bring them together. So you have 46, which is what all of our cells are supposed to have. And together, that cell, that fertilized egg, is about the diameter of a hair. I don't know if any of you have, I'm losing my hair, but, but if you look at the hair on your arm or the hair on your head, look at how small that is. 
And to think that contained within that one cell is all the information God needs to form you. That's really, really small. And so that cell begins to divide, and you have two, and you have four, and you have eight, and 16, and 32, etc., etc. And as it implants and divides, all of a sudden some cells or some genes turn on and some aren't turned on, and there's information and timing all involved in that too. And so bones begin to form, and skin begins to form, and eyes. There's cells that form your brain. There's cells that form your ears. How can you possibly believe, even for a moment, that there was no creator, that there was no designer? That's what he's talking about here. I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and I want you to become fearfully, and I want you to be amazed at the creation that you are. Because God superintended all that. He knit you together. He formed my men inward parts. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. But you see, there's the problem. That means that you are the person that God wanted you to be. And that can be an issue. You see, I didn't have, it wasn't my choice who my parents were. I didn't choose how I was conceived. I didn't choose where I would grow up. I didn't choose my gender. God chose my gender. He chose your gender. I didn't choose how tall I would be. Or how athletic. I was mad at God in my high school years because I was skinny and, and wasn't, I wasn't athletic. I wanted to be popular. I wanted to be one of those basketball, football player people. But I wasn't any of those. Those kinds of things were not my choice. So you have two options. You can be mad at God or you can embrace the reality that you are the person that God wanted you to be. I have a, a granddaughter that was born with spina bifida. She's paralyzed from the waist down. And one of the prayers that we pray for her is that she would grasp the reality that she is exactly the person that God wanted her to be. And the same thing is true. God wanted you to be you. He didn't want you to be somebody else. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your books were written, every, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You were created for a purpose. You are not a random chance occurrence, no matter how you were conceived. No matter what your life looks like, you have a purpose, a divine purpose, that God has given you and he made you to be the person you are because he made you to, be, to fulfill the purpose that he has for you. You may not like the person that you are. I wish I was taller. I wish I was shorter. I wish I was prettier. I wish I didn't have to worry about my weight. God made you to be the person that you are. He is your creator. 
Whoops, I missed the verse too. It's Matthew six twenty-seven. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? We spend so much time worried about how long we're going to live instead of how well we're going to live. We spend days and days worrying about vaccinations and what we're going to eat and how, we're, how much we're going to eat and exercise and all those kinds of things. That's, we don't have any control over how long we live. April 21st at 10.10 10 in the morning is when my wife's life ended. That was God's choice. It wasn't mine. We don't have that choice either. We have a choice of how well we live, but not how long we live. And God's purpose for you, especially if you're a person my age, is not simply to absorb teaching, to go to church and to Sunday school and Bible studies and all these kinds of things. It's not simply to absorb all that and, and then spend your retirement years trying to entertain yourself to death. God's purpose in building me, God's purpose in building my wife, for years and years and years, investing in her or in me, is so that we can be a blessing to someone like you. Your purpose is his purpose and not just simply trying to figure out what will make me happy. God knows everything about you. God is present everywhere you are. God is your creator. I think in verses 17 through the end, we see David's response to God's tremendous care for him, his benevolent, loving care for him. He says in verse 17, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Part of the reason that our worship tends to be lackluster is because we don't understand the blessing that we have simply by being born again in Christ. That God's care for us is amazing. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts. How vast is the sum of them. It's something that's hard to imagine. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. He, it's like he can't imagine that God is with him all the time. That God is helping him all the time. We're so distracted by all kinds of other things that we seldom wonder. We never stop to adore this God who has created everything, who sustains everything, and yet knows you and I better than we know ourselves. But I want you to show, show you David's devotion to God in verses 19 through 22. He says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. What would happen if you had a, the best, your best friend? Somebody who has stood by you during the thick and thin. Somebody who has helped you and encouraged you and supplied you. Suppose somebody else you meet, a co-worker or something, starts talking smack about you. How would you react if somebody attacked your best friend? Not physically, but with words. And I think that's what we see here in the life of David. There are people, there are evil people in the world. Yes, they all need saving, but there are evil people in the world. People who speak against God with malicious intent. He says, your enemies take your name in vain. How many times do we hear God mentioned without a reference to the God of the Bible? Oh my God. 
How many thousand times do you hear that in a day? That's taking God's name in vain. Just as well as you might have said, God damn it. That's taking God's name in vain. You're using God's name in a way that's superfluous. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't have any meaning. And David's saying, you know what? When I hear these people talk about my God, the God who cares for me, who watches over me, who guides me, he said, it ticks me off. It makes me angry. Do I not hate those who hate you? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. You know what? You need to, you need to choose sides. Are you going to be devoted to God or are you going to be devoted to the world? We have grown up in the world. We live in a, in a cesspool. That's the world around us, the culture. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the Father, the love of the Father is not in him. He says, if your passion is for the world, if you're looking to the world system to somehow meet your needs, he says, you're on the wrong side. You have to choose. Are you going to be on the world system or on God's system? And yet the world is what we're familiar with. It's natural to us. We somehow think that our world around us, the culture, is somehow morally neutral. But it's not. He says in verse 16 of 1 John chapter 2, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. 1 John 5.19 says, And we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We live in a world system that John describes as one that is filled with the desires of the flesh. It's the rebellion against God, the thing that we naturally do anyway. The desires of the eyes. If, if I only had that car, if I only had that, that girl, if I only had that guy, if I only had whatever it is. And the pride of life. Oh, man, I'm, <clears throat> I'm, I'm better than everyone else. I know more than everyone else. I'm more successful. He says you have to choose. Are you going to set your mind on things above, as John or Colossians 3.2 says, or are you going to set your mind on earthly things? We like to play patty cake. We go to the world. We, we go to movies. We go to chocolate. Anybody else here a chocolate person? We go to the world to satisfy our hearts when the only one who can satisfy our soul is God himself. But then I want you to look at verses 23 and 24, and I would encourage you to memorize these verses because it's a plea for, from David for purity. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my, my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Here's David. He has just talked about how God has searched him and knows him. And he comes to the end and he looks back at verses 19 through 22 and he recognizes that same kind of evil still resides within him. But he doesn't know where it is. And that's what happens to us. We're deceived by the world. We pick up thoughts and ideas and actions that we think are correct. The world says it's, it's, 
It's expected that you're going to sleep with your girlfriend or your boyfriend before you get married. That's just the way it is. That's what it's expected. And he sees that same fallenness within himself, and he recognizes that he can't see it himself. He doesn't know what he doesn't know. But there's someone who knows him better than he knows himself. And that's God. And he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Our hearts are deceitful, brothers and sisters. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I would encourage you in this next week to take time and to go back to Psalm 139 and to think deeply. Maybe there's a verse or a passage that has struck you, but it's something that you need to think about. I would encourage you in the week ahead to go back to Psalm 139 and to think deeply about that passage of Scripture, to meditate on it with the goal of application. What can I do differently? How can I think differently? Because as we see in this passage, God's, cares, God's care for David motivated him to godliness. And I think as you and I understand the, the miraculous nature of our creation, that, that you're not random. You're not simply the product of your, your biology or your uh, environment. God has formed you to be the person that you are. And he is present everywhere that you can go, whether you like that or not. He has made you to be the person that you are. Stop fighting that and embrace that. God, this is who I am. This is who you've made me to be. What do you want me to do? Because he has a purpose. He has a goal. He has a reason for your creation. You're not just a random chance occurrence. And God knows everything about you. You don't have to explain it. He knows everything about you. Shouldn't that motivate us to be more like him? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Psalm 139. I thank you that your word is rich and deep and full. I thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving it to us, giving us minds to see and ears to hear. I thank you, Heavenly Father, for creating us to be who we are. We may not like the parents that we had or the situation that we grew up in or the the gifts or lack of gifts that you have given us. And yet, Heavenly Father, you have called us to be a part of the plan that you have for this world. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would move in the hearts of each one. Encourage them, Lord, as they look at Psalm 139 to love you more, to obey you more, and to become more and more like you. Father, we thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.